This morning I'll be reading from Romans 8, 12 through 17. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you do not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If in fact we suffer with him so that we may be glorified with him. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. All right. Good morning, Highland. It's good to see you here today. My name is Shane Hughes. I'm one of the ministers here. Um, before we jump into the sermon, I want to give you a, an announcement. If you're brand new, um, you may not know this, but we're in a season of discernment about our leaders. Um, we have asked the congregation to, um, to, to, to raise up those whom God has already called to be elders for the next season of our church, to lead our church. And this began... Um, much earlier with a, a committee that helped us organize this process. They have finished their work and we're grateful for all of them. Um, they submitted uh, and kind of collated, organized the names which you put on, on the forms. Um, and the elders have taken that list and um, called uh, some of those names, the names of, the, of the, those that rose to the top, uh, to, be, uh, to consider being elders. And so I want to give you an update on that process where we're at where we're going. But because I'm a geek and I love data, I want to share some data with you first, because I think it's meaningful. Um, of the nominations that we received, nearly 90% of those forms included the name of at least one woman. Um, also, uh, nearly 50% of the nominations included the name of at least one single person. But what I find very fascinating is that there were 320 distinct names, different people in our congregation. And so I want to point out here that there are odds are there is someone here that thinks that you are their shepherd. <coughs> 320 names out of a church of about, I don't know, 850, 900. We're averaging about 700 and so on attendance each Sunday. One out of every three of you is doing the work of a shepherd. And as we talked about, the, the baseline, the, the door to get in to become an elder, to, to, to lead our church, is that you care for others and that you take care of them, that you see them, that you ask them how they're doing, that you walk beside them when they're having a hard time, that you visit them when they're sick or they're, they need help that you show up for them. That's the baseline of what it means to be a shepherd at the Highland Church of Christ. There's other things as well, but that is the ground floor. And 320 of you have been identified as someone who's doing that for someone else. So I have two thoughts about that. The first is, thank you. It is a joy to serve at a church where there are so many people that are doing the work that God has called them to. It is a joy to work at a church where we are taking care of one another, that we are loving one another, that we are watching out and protecting one another. And odds are you're one of those people. Um, it's also interesting, and the elders took note, that there were a lot of single names on, on the list, different people that had been identified. And, and the elders talked and discussed what, what should we do about that, and they've decided that rather than, 
you know, kind of move that through quickly. They want to take a time to, to spend more time in prayer and thought and discussion about that. They also want to hear from you as a congregation how you feel about singles uh, leading our church as elders. And so um, in, the, in the near future, they're going to begin a process to, to begin that conversation again, and then there'll be another nomination process depending on how that turns out. So just know that's, that's in the future. It's, it's not far off, but it's not immediate. Um, but let me tell you what's going to happen in the next few weeks. Uh, the, the, those that have been raised up have already been contacted, and they're in a season of, of personal discernment to decide if it's right for them and their family uh, to take on leadership here at this church. And they're going to be invited to, to experience what it's like to be elders through some meetings and some conversations with, with our leaders. And, and then they're going to decide, yeah, this is something that I feel called to do. This is something that God is calling me, and I'm going to accept this, this mantle, for lack of a better term. Um, and then you will hear about those names and those people who've been put forward, and you'll have the opportunity to respond to those names. And so if you see someone on that list that you're like, absolutely, yes, this has been a, a person that's been a shepherd for me in a time of trouble. This has been a person that has taught me what it means to look like God. This is a person whose example of a godly life reflects what I think Jesus looks like. Then you should go and tell them. You should say, yes, you are my shepherd, and I'm grateful that our church sees that as well. You should talk to them about that. Um, after that period has passed, um, we're going to have an ordination. It, it's probably going to be in late February. Um, if we can't get everything done, it might be a little bit later. But then at some point uh, in the spring of 2023, we will ordain our new leaders, our new shepherds to lead our church. So we just wanted to let you know what's going on with that process, where we're at, and what the future holds. If you have any questions about that, you can talk to an elder. You can find me, Suzetta, or David Sessions, and we'd be happy to tell you more about what's going on there. Um, before we jump into the sermon, would you please pray with me? Father God, we're grateful for this time and this place. We're grateful for this people that are gathered. Father, it's a mystery to me how you have woven our hearts and our lives together as we've spent time saying your prayers and taking your body and your blood, as we've spent time together discerning the work of your spirit within us, you have knit us together. And made us something more than believers, Father. You have made us family. And our lives have been grafted into one another's lives, and you can't tell us apart. So, Father, now, as we turn our hearts and our minds to Romans chapter 8, I pray that you pour through me the gift of preaching, that I might speak your truth and love to these, your people. It's together that the church says, Amen. All right, so we're in this series on Romans. It's, it's the heart of the gospel. It's the core of the gospel. It's everything you need to know about who God is and how God cares about you. And I challenged you last week to read Romans 8, Romans chapter 8, in one sitting. And I hope you were able to do that last week. If you didn't do it, do it again. If you did it, do it again. Read Romans 8 this week in one setting all the way through so you can kind of get the big sense of the flow of the argument that Paul wants to make. So you can understand what he's trying to say about the nature and the character of God that loves us so dearly. So if you haven't had a chance to do that, the other thing is just keep showing up. We're going to be in here for like another four or five, three or four weeks. And so be there and show up on Sunday so you can kind of get the sense of the land when we talk about Romans 8. Because all of Scripture is useful. All of Scripture is inspired. There are very unique places for each part of God's Word. But some parts are more important than others. And Romans 8 is one of those places that is closer to the heart of God than anywhere else in Scripture. And so we pay attention. 
And last week I used a quote from Barbara Brown Taylor that told us that sin is our only hope. Which sounds wrong at first. It sounds like that's a mistake to say. But sin actually is our only hope to understand God. And you might understand sin as like some kind of technical definition. You, could, you know, it's, it's missing the mark on a, uh, an arrow shooting at a target. You might understand it uh, in a lot of different ways. At its core, sin is not the breaking of a rule. The sin is breaking of a relationship. Does that make sense? It's not the breaking of a rule. It's not that God's out to kind of watch you and trying to grade the paper of your life, finding out where you made a mistake. It's, it's breaking of a relationship. It's breaking trust and covenant with somebody else or breaking trust and covenant with God. That is the base understanding of sin. And if you don't understand what sin is, then your life is a wreck. Do you get that? Sin is our only hope because it's the only way to teach us how to live toward the righteousness of God. And it's interesting as, our, as our, 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 our culture has become more secular in the last few years, calling things sin is more and more difficult. It's become a personal judgment rather than kind of a public one. And there's some benefits to that because it doesn't involve shame in the same way anymore, but there's also some things that we've lost because of that. Now remember, a liberal is going to define sin as uh, a liberal way to define sin is to call it an institutional problem. The problem is the structure of our society, the structure of our culture, and people are born into difficult places, and they're not wrong about that, but there's also some personal accountability. A fundamentalist <laughs> view of sin is to say that it's actually your fault because you made a decision that was poor, and because you did that, you deserve to be punished. The problem with that fundamentalist view is more often than not, we identify sins as those people's problems and not our own. But sin gives us, understanding sin gives us the framework to speak of our lives as journeys toward righteousness. As journeys that move us toward breaking our relationships less, breaking our covenants and our trust less. Because you know exactly what sin is my kids know exactly what sin is. When somebody takes something from you, when somebody does something that tells, takes, steals from you, when somebody breaks your trust, you know exactly when that happened. The difference between you and me and my two-year-old son is we don't scream as loudly as when it happens to us as when it happens to him. And instead we end up using pithy, almost meaningless phrases is like, hey, you just, you do you. You live your life and I'll live mine. If it doesn't hurt me, then whatever. It's fascinating to me that um, I, I heard this week, um, younger generations, so kind of late millennial, early Gen Y, prefer churches that have longer sermons. The average sermon length at a church that has, is hitting that demographic is like 40 to 45 minutes. They prefer longer sermons. They're going to churches that offer that. Um, churches that tend to have an older demographic um, tend to have shorter sermons. So I have a friend that, that preaches across town, and in his sermons, he has a mostly older crowd. His sermons are 12 minutes max. 
And I, I can't even say my name in 12 minutes. I have no idea how he does this. But that's what his, his church needs. Younger, the younger generation, because they're looking for the framework that allows them to navigate righteousness in a healthy way, are looking for longer sermons so that they can build that framework. And that's being expressed in two different ways. It's fascinating to me. They, 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 I think it's pointing to a, a hunger for stronger boundaries. And there's two ways that that express, gets expressed. One is in a liturgy of service. I don't want to have to choose what's, what's, what I say and what I pray and what I should do in the church. I just want someone to give that to me so I can enter into it. And so there's this hunger for liturgy and service. Uh, the, the other is, is, is a hunger of doctrine. I just want to know what to believe and what to think. And so our Reformed brothers and sisters are really excelling at this. And some of our Orthodox and Catholic brothers and sisters are really excelling at that. They're providing these means by which younger generations can enter into a relationship with God. Because sin is our only hope. And this whole movement is fascinating to me as a like, late Gen Xer. Because I grew up in that fundamentalist church I've told you about. It was so loving. It was a church that loved me to death, but it was conservative to the core, fundamentalist. And, and I've, I, I ex experienced the power of grace. I experienced the power of God's love. And it set me free from all that. And now my children are going to long for that because it allows them to structure it. And I just glory in the wisdom of God. Which brings us to Romans 8. And if you have your Bible, I want you to open it up. If you have it on your phone, open it up because you're going to follow along with me. Um, we're going to start in about verse 12. And there's kind of one, there's one thesis, there's one thing that you need to hear about this, but it comes in three parts. It's the spirit that enables us to put to death the deeds of the body because the fear of death, fear of, uh, we become slaves to sin. And the Spirit, all who are led by God's Spirit, are children of God. So if you, are, if you are enabled by the Spirit to put to death the deeds of the body, then you are a child of God. And we have received that Spirit of adoption. We've become a child of God and, and not one of slavery. And when we cry, Abba, Father, the same Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So our intimacy with God, enabled by the Spirit, is the evidence, the evidence that we are children of God. And one thing we have to be careful about when we talk about this nature of adoption is the adoption that we think of in the 20th century and the adoption that people experienced in the first century weren't exactly the same. There's a little bit of cultural difference. It's the difference between the musical or movie, depending on what generation you were born, Annie and the movie or book, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Now let me explain the difference and you'll understand where I'm at. In the movie musical Annie, brilliant musical, lovely songs, it's great to be a part of, there's this poor little orphan girl whose parents have died and she lives in this orphanage run by um, some people that are corrupt and she's adopted by Daddy Warbucks, which makes me ask a lot of questions. Daddy Warbucks, was he called Daddy before he adopted her? Like what's the deal there? because that might be just a little bit creepy. Warbucks is also a strange last name, whatever. 
Daddy Warbucks doesn't even show up to the orphanage, but sends one of his assistants to go and find a girl that he's going to adopt. The motives are not clear here, but they're kind of crazy. Anyway, Annie goes from living uh, in a life of poverty and hard work and suffering in the orphanage to be to live in this beautiful mansion where she's given clothes, new experience, and she is loved by this. Um, adopted father. And, and then the orphanage director who is corrupt finds out that this guy is rich and tries to steal her back, right? To get more money. She's just going to try to profit off the situation. And that's one way that we understand adoption. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory is closer to a first century adoption. Now you're going to say, wait a minute, Charlie wasn't adopted to anything. Just wait. Charlie gets a golden ticket like with seven or eight other kids, right? To go, to go visit the chocolate factory of Willy Wonka. And Willy Wonka is this strange, oddly recluse, you know, uh, I don't industrialist, uh, who has made a fortune uh, making chocolate, but he hasn't really left the factory in a long time. And so Charlie and these other children line up at the front door of the factory. They get to go inside and one by one, as they go through the tour of the, uh, the factory, their own kind of vices eliminate them from the tour itself. One of them is too gluttonous, and one of them is too greedy, one of them too prideful. Um, one way after another, all of the children are eliminated um, except for Charlie. And you find out at the end of the book or the end of the movie that this was never a tour of a factory at all. It was a job interview. And because Charlie made it to the end, although he still made a mistake at the beginning, but whatever, he becomes the heir of Willy Wonka, and he is able to inherit the factory. Even though he already has a dysfunctional family of his own, he is adopted into Willy Wonka's fortune. That is closer to a first century adoption than the story that we're more familiar with, with Annie. It might surprise you to know that we have ancient records that show that many of the people who were adopted in the first century weren't children at all. They were in their 30s, their 40s, even their 50s when they're adopted. They're grown adults. So why would you adopt an adult? Well, it's because you want to protect your legacy. It's exactly what's happening when God first meets Abraham, Abram at the time. God said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you everything you could imagine. I'm going to show you a land that's going to be yours. And Abraham says, yeah, that's great, but I don't have any kids. In fact, one of my servants, Eliezer, is going to receive everything when I die. What Abraham is saying is, I'm about to adopt Eliezer to be my heir. And so the, the world of Romans chapter 8 is a lot less like Annie. It's a lot more like Willy Wonka. The other striking thing that happens as you read this text is, according to Scripture, not everyone is a child of God. In fact, the reason I know this is because I was preaching a sermon in, in California and I said, we're all sons and daughters of God. Everyone is a child of God. And afterwards, one of my elders came forward, and he had that look in his eye. And after a sermon, when an elder comes forward with that look in his eye, you get like, you just get a little nervous, right? Because you don't know what's going to happen. And he said, great sermon. I loved it. But you're wrong. Not everyone is a child of God. And I said, of course everyone is a child of God. Are you kidding me? We're all created by God. He said, no. What you mean is... We are all created in the image of God. We all got, bear God's image, but we are not all children of God. Only those 
who have experienced the life transformation of the Spirit. I said, nah. He said, I'm right. I'm focused on the Bible. He said, you're categorically, you're wrong. He was probably right. <laughs> what Scripture says is that we, you, and I, what Paul is saying to the Romans is that we have been adopted. You have purpose. You were not conceived by accident. You were not born as an afterthought. You were chosen like Charlie. You were brought into the family on purpose. You are a beloved child of God. And Paul says, choose. You can either be live in fear as a slave or you can be a co-heir with Christ. God is extending the willingness to adopt you now. Kind of maybe in the back of Paul's mind is the story of the prodigal son in Luke. It's a story that Jesus tells. And if you don't know that story, it's, it's a son who's um, quite arrogant in his behavior. He goes to his father and says, look, basically, I kind of wish you were dead now. And I can't wait for you to die. So can I just have my half of the inheritance before you die? Because it just not, it's not going to happen quick enough. And in fact, the Midrash, kind of the commentary on Scripture at the time of the Old Testament says, anybody that does this is, is a fool because they're, they're, no one is going to take care of you in your old age if you give away your inheritance now. But this father chooses to give the inheritance away, and the, fun the son takes it. He goes to a different country. He blows it. Um, he spends it. And because he doesn't have any people in that country, his people are back at his father's house. And because there's a famine in that country, he ends up feeding pigs. In fact, he's eating from the food that the pigs eat. He kind of longs for that. And he says to himself, hey, look, the slaves in my father's house, the servants in my father's house eat better than I'm eating now. So maybe I'll just go back home and see if I can work as a slave. He hasn't changed. He's still just looking out for himself, but he says, oh, maybe back home things will get better for me. And so he's, as he's traveling home, he's working on the speech in his mind. He's ready to deliver to his father. His father sees him in the distance, and he runs to catch his son. He runs to catch his son so that the village doesn't catch him first and shame him out of relationship. And before the son can begin his speech, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Just let me be a servant the father puts a ring on his finger and a robe on his back and throws a party. You get to choose. Would you like to be a slave to fear or co-heir with Christ? That son, the younger son, is not the only son in the story. An older son is out in the fields working, being faithful, keeping the covenant, and he hears about the party. Now, an older son in the first century in that, in that culture, your job was to be the greeter at the party, to stand at the front gate and greet all of the guests as they come in. But the party has already begun by the time the older son gets in. So it's clear that he's not quite as faithful as everybody thinks he ought to be. In fact, he won't even go into the party, which is another embarrassing, shameful moment for this father. And so the father twice in the same day goes out to find one of his sons and begs him to come into the party. And you get to choose. 
Do you want to be a slave? To live in the boundary rules of a servant? Or do you want to be a son and a daughter of the king? But the thing that you have to realize is that when you belong to God, you're belonging to a family. Adoption abuses belonging with elasticity. It makes it stretch. We know there's always more room for more at the table and more in the family. And as we shape our communities of belonging, we have to run to keep up to God's divine pace since God keeps growing his family with great creativity and an ever greater reach. One's place in God's family doesn't depend on uh, blood, but on grace. The reality that we have is when, when you join this family, when you become adopted into this family, what you have to realize is God's interest is not just in you, but adopting in a whole lot of other kids. And that table at God's house is going to keep stretching and growing and stretching and growing as God includes more people in that family. So you have a choice. You can be a slave to sin or joint heir with Christ. And it's that spirit that allows us to call Abba, Father. Abba was a phrase that only children could use. It's like, the, the, it was a, uh, messing up the word Ab. Ab is father in Aramaic. But, but children like to put two syllables and add a vowel at the end, and so Abba. It's the same way we change dad to daddy, mom to mama. It's the way that Jesus refers to God when Jesus prays, calls them Abba, Father. And it's, it's so important to the early church that they don't translate it. They keep it in Aramaic. In fact, by the time of Mark's gospel, they've got to translate it for people because they may not know Aramaic. But that may have been something that the Roman church was using in their worship service. When they prayed, they prayed to Abba, Father, because Jesus prayed to Abba, Father. In fact, on the cross, Jesus cries out to Abba, Father. The reality is that a slave could never use the word Abba when talking about the patriarch because they were not a child. The Spirit allows you to call God Daddy. And there's obviously some sort of intimacy connection there, and I don't know how far that goes. I don't want to push that beyond what Paul intends but your classification changes, and so the name that you can use for God changes. You are heirs to the promise, but you are also heirs to the path. And we stand beside Jesus, and that may include some hard things. We're going to talk a little bit about, more about that next week, but Paul kind of wants to, to point to that glimmer that there may be some hard things ahead of you in your path as you are heirs to the promise. But you are not alone. And we can do hard things together. The reality is that everyone needs a sense in which we belong. A sense in which someone is standing up for them. Psychologists will tell you that there is a deep psychological value in having someone you can call mommy or daddy or having somewhere where you feel safe as a child. Uh, a, a baby that is not held and loved and cared for, that does not form an attachment, it does not matter afterwards if they receive the most excellent of care. 
It does not matter if they're given food and water and shelter beyond that point of attachment. They will die. Because love and connection is more important to a baby than oxygen. You need a place and a memory of where you felt safe. Food and care cannot replace the need to belong to a family, to have someone that will hold you, and to know the presence of a loving parent. Everyone needs a sense in which you belong. And whether that looks like a Tesla and Gucci or tattoos and gangs, belonging matters. And if it matters to God, it should matter to us. And so I have a couple of very direct applications that I want to tell you about uh, that directly affects the Highland Church of Christ. Uh, last year, uh, we raised some funds to, to build that playground in our South Foyer, and it's beautiful, and it's a lot of fun. It's a place for our young families to gather before and after church and, and through the week. But if the extent of that space was just for us, that space would be a total and utter failure. We are not here to create good spaces for just ourselves. God did not adopt you as a son or a daughter so you could sit alone at the table of God. God calls us to love our neighbors and invite them in to the family of God. And so we've made the very intentional effort in the summer when it's 110 degrees and it's too hot outside to take a slide down at uh, Rose Park just around the corner. Our neighborhood can come in here and play on our playground. That playground is going to be used for other spaces that we're exploring so that we can partner with those that are in a hard spot. Families that are involved with CPS, we're going to be able to use that space to provide a place where they can play safely with their children, monitored and watched, but it's going to be a safe place for them to reconnect and rebuild the bonds that have been broken. We're going to do effort this, this year to partner and support those that are in the foster care system, but also those that are chosen called to be foster parents. Not everyone is called to adopt children or to foster, but our church can support the ones who are, whether they're part of our church or outside of it. And we're excited about some of the initiatives that are coming for that. We can partner with children that are in the institutional system through uh, groups like CASA, they provide an advocate for a child that's going through a judicial process. God didn't call you and adopt you. It's just so you could live in God's mansion and wear God's clothes. God called you and adopted you so that you could share God's love with those that desperately need it. With those that have no sense of belonging no family to call their own. And this is why I know Highland is capable of doing this. Because there are 320 of you that are already being a shepherd to somebody else in this church. There are 320 of you that know the names of somebody else's kids in this church and you ask them about the baseball game. There are 320 of you that keep track of each other and you stand up for each other and you protect each other and you can do that for them. God has called us to be part of a family. And once you're part of that family, all you can do is run to keep up with how many new people God keeps adding in. 
I don't know about you, but that's a vision and a mission that I want to be a part of. Will you stand and sing? So if you hear nothing else, hear this. You are not a mistake. You are not an accident. You are not an afterthought. You are God's child, and he adopted you. He found you. He chose you. He brought you into his family. And you get to experience the love and care and security that comes from being part of God's house. There's no place in the universe that is secure and loved as God's house. So this week, have courage to shine. Have courage to go. Have courage to bring light and love and security to somebody else who desperately needs it. You are a child of God, and that will never change. Nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Nothing can change that. God's love will never end. Let's live in that victory together. Go in peace.